Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another live episode of the Peter Schiff Show. We got more bad economic news that came out during the week, but I want to focus on the bad news that came out mainly today. We got some really bad news from the Philly Fed, the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index for the month of April. Remember, the Biden administration wants to keep taking credit for the strength of American manufacturing. We've got the strong economy. We're manufacturing again. Well, the numbers belie those comments. The number for April was supposed to improve slightly from the minus 23.2 from March, which was a pretty bad number by itself. It was supposed to improve to a slightly less bad minus 19.4. Instead, it collapsed all the way down to minus 31.3. In order to find a Philly Fed manufacturing number that low, you've got to go back to March of 2009. That was about the bottom of the Great Recession. In fact, March of 2009 is when the stock market bottomed. The S&P was down something like 50% uh, at that point when the market bottomed out from the big collapse uh, from the financial crisis of 2008. Maybe it was 40, 50, I forget the exact percent. But March of 2009, that was where the market bottomed. And so that's when you got a Philly Fed number this bad. In fact, the number is now down for eight consecutive months. I'm not sure when the last time that happened. It's down for 10 out of the last 11 months. I don't think that's ever happened to an economy that wasn't already in recession. So this number is very consistent with an economy in recession. And if it's not in recession, it's certainly suggesting that we are on the cusp of one. Also, the jobless claims number came out today for the week. It was a slight uptick, but more significant than the fact that we got 245,000 claims, which was just above the 242, was that we still revised up the prior week from 239 to 240, but these numbers are very elevated over where they were. These are the highest numbers, really, that we've seen since January of 2022. And if you look at the increase in continuing claims, it's now at the highest since December of 2021. Uh, so unemployment is quietly becoming a bigger problem. It's not screaming anything right now in the headlines, so people can still ignore it. But this problem is going to get much, much bigger. Also, we got the leading economic indicators for March. Now, this index had been down for 11 consecutive months. And following today's decline, it's now down 12 months in a row, an entire year. You know, this is not a calendar year, but 12 months is a year of falling leading economic indicators. It's pretty hard to claim that the economy is strong when these forward-looking index indicators are so weak. In fact, the consensus forecast was for a minus 0.4. And 
that would have been just a slight decline from the minus 0.3 from January. Well, the January minus 0.3, that got revised even worse to minus 0.5. And the March number was not minus 0.4 as expected, but minus 1.2. Again, this is one of the weakest LEIs that we've seen. And in order to get a 12-month streak of negative leading economic indicators, you have to go back to the Great Recession. It was between 2007 and 2008. It was a year that spanned both of those. Because remember, the, the Great Recession began in mid-2000 or late 2007 and ran through 2008 into 2009. It was within that context that we had 12 months in a row where you had negative leading economic indicators. Well, we've got that now. And apparently, we don't, we're not even in recession. We've got this supposedly strong economy, yet we're seeing a streak of weakness in the leading economic indicators that we haven't seen since the worst recession since the Great Depression. So the data is showing us that the economy is a lot weaker than everybody is saying. The difference is inflation is much stronger. So now we don't just have a weak economy, we have strong inflation, we have stagflation. And again, this is a problem that is global and it's not because it's just a coincidence that all these countries are experiencing inflation and therefore we can't blame anybody for it because everybody is suffering for it. No, everybody made the same mistake. All these central banks printed too much money. They all kept their interest rates too low. One of the chief offenders, the Bank of England, I remember listening to a lot of these press conferences where the head of the uh, Bank of England kept talking about how inflation is too low. We got to keep interest rates you know, at zero, wherever they were. We got to keep printing money because we don't have enough inflation. Well, look at what they just got. You know, We got a lot of inflation numbers on the week, but the ones out of the UK were the worst. And there they were looking for increase of 0.5 in, in March, and instead we got an increase of 0.8, so worse than expected. And now the year-over-year -year increase, despite the rate hikes that they've had thus far in the UK, the year-over-year -year increase in consumer prices is 10.1%. They have a long way to go in the UK. Rates have to go a lot higher. Government spending needs to be substantially cut. None of that is happening. Nobody at the Bank of England is going to be talking about inflation being too low, probably for the rest of our lives, because it's never going to be too low. It never was too low. That was just made up. That was a pretense. But now it's clearly much too high. And there is no way that they're going to get that inflation rate back down below 2%. They're probably not going to get even close to 2%. And the same thing is true with all these other countries in Europe. Everybody has let the inflation horses out of the barn, even Japan. You know, I'll look at Japan's inflation numbers because they came out about an hour ago. Japan still has one of the lowest inflation rates in the world, but it's still not below 2%. The um, March number came out up 0.3 on the month. That's not a insignificant increase. And the year-over-year -year change 
in consumer prices is 3.2%. Even if you X out uh, fresh food, uh, it's 3.1% year-over-year increase. So it's not the 10% that they got in the UK. But remember, not too long ago, the Japanese had stable prices. They even had a few years where prices dropped slightly. But now they're rising. They're rising a lot more than 2%. And these numbers are going to go up. Why? Because interest rates are still negative. I think their overnight rate is minus 0.5 or minus or minus 0.1, rather, I think is what it is. Uh, but the JGB is still targeting the yield on the 10-year Japanese government bond, or the Bank of Japan is targeting that yield at 50 basis points. The inflation rate is over 300 basis points, yet the 10-year yield is at a half a percent. And so this creates re requires a lot of inflation. A lot of yen has to be printed to buy up all these bonds because who in their right mind would want to lend money to the Japanese government at a half a percent if inflation is 3%? And of course, it's not going to stay at 3%. It's going to go up. So inflation is this big problem. We didn't have the big inflation problem in 2009 that we had now. The last time you had these really bad numbers on the economy. But you know, not only did we get bad economic numbers today, we got some bad corporate earnings. Particularly, I want to talk about Tesla, because this is a stock that I have been warning about for years, because there was so much you know, hype surrounding Tesla. And I'm not saying that you know, they're a bad company and that they make bad cars. You know, they're a good company and you know, they, make, they make good cars, right? But a lot of the people, you know, like the Kathy Woods out there who got into Tesla early and it was a big bull, they were always claiming that, hey, Tesla is going to make all this money because they dominate the electric vehicle market. And so as the market grows, they're just going to, you know, write their own ticket. They're going to make all this money. And you go back to a lot of my podcasts for a couple of years ago when I talked about this, I said the mistake that all these bulls are making is they're underestimating the degree to which Tesla is going to face competition in the future. Because if you build a better mousetrap and you start making money, then other people want to build similar mousetraps and compete away your market. And that's what's happened. That's what I predicted would happen. You have all of the mainstream automobile companies uh, now have EVs that they're producing. And so Tesla doesn't have this market all to itself. It has to share the market with a lot of major automobile companies that have massive distribution, showrooms all over the world. And as a result, there is a lot of pressure on Tesla to lower prices to try to maintain market share and fend off all this competition. And so today, Tesla came out with earnings that were way below estimates because margins have collapsed because Tesla has been forced to cut prices in a very competitive market. And Tesla stock dropped 10% on the news. The shares right now are trading at, let me take a quick look, $163 a share. The 52-week high was 364 so well below that high. You know, I read on Twitter that after these bad earnings came out, Kathy Wood came out with her price target for a Tesla. And I think it was for 2027, something like that. 
And her price target is $2,000 a share, right? It's currently 162. I think she said that would give it like a $5 trillion market cap, which means I guess uh, Warren, um, um, Elon Musk at that point would be a trillionaire if uh, her unbiased, uh, completely reasonable forecast turns out to be true. In fact, even under her bearish scenario, right? Her worst case scenario for Tesla, I think was like $1,200 a share versus the 163 it's at now. So she still doesn't get what's going on with, with this stock. And that is part of uh, capitalism. If you are successful and you make a lot of money, other people want a piece of your action. That is how a free market works. And you can't maintain that position indefinitely. Now, you could try. Take a look at a company like Apple. I mean, Apple has still maintained a pretty healthy slice of, of that market. It does have competition, but it continues to put out products that people like, and it's been able to hold on to that market share. The question is, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, will that still be the case, or will competition have taken a bigger bite out of Apple's profits? It's already happening, though, with Tesla, because Tesla, I think, has faced a lot more competition than, than Apple in that respect. But also, why is Tesla under pressure to lower prices? Because the, the consumer's in trouble. The economy is weak. Car buyers don't have as much money to buy new cars as they did before. Why? Well, because they've lost their good paying job and they've tried to replace it with two or three low paying jobs. And they're spending more on food. They're spending more on insurance, on electricity, on everything. They don't have as much money left over to buy a new car. So they got to make do with the car they have. And so as a result, companies are being forced to cut prices, even though their costs are probably going up. <clears throat> but they're selling items that consumers don't need. I mean, most Americans don't need a new car. Some people do. But most Americans have a car, <coughs> they have a second car, and they can keep driving them. They can fix them, right? And, and so it's a discretionary purchase. And in a weak economy with a lot of inflation, those are the exact type of purchases that people cut back on. That's why the companies that I've been investing in, personally and for our clients at Europe Pacific Asset Management, don't sell those type of products in general. I mean, we have a little bit of exposure there. Um, but in general, we have very defensive businesses where our customers will continue to buy the products and the services, even if times are hard, even if prices are going up. They will cut back on other purchases in order to afford the stuff that our companies are, are selling. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I want to talk a little bit about how the gold market has been holding up during the course of the week because there's been plenty of attempts to hammer the gold price down. It was down, I think it was maybe on Tuesday where it was down $30 or so on the open, but pretty much they've been selling off the price of gold every morning. It's been hammered back below 2000, but as I've been saying, it's not getting too far below. Maybe 1990, 1980s in that area, but anything below 2000 is bringing in new buyers. And as I am recording this podcast here on Thursday evening, gold is at 2004. So they've bashed it down below 2000 several times. They may try a few more times to try to flush some people out. But the problem is more money continues to come into the market. Now, that's not a problem if you're long and you're expecting higher prices. But if you're hoping the price of gold is going to go down or you're, you know, you're wanting the price to go down, it ain't working. Gold's not going down because too much money is coming into the market. There's a lot of money on the sidelines, a lot of cash out there that wants to move into gold. There are a lot of countries now around the world that have a lot of dollars that they don't want. They are trying to prepare for a post-dollarized world where the dollar is no longer the epicenter of the global monetary system. And so they have a lot of dollars that they don't need. Why don't they need them? Because we don't make products that they want to buy. We have a $1 trillion per year trade deficit. So that's a trillion dollars that the world has every year that they don't really need. Now, while the dollar is the reserve currency, well, they'll hold on to those dollars. They'll buy U.S. treasuries. They'll buy mortgage-backed securities. But if the dollar isn't the reserve currency, if they don't need dollars to buy oil anymore or other commodities because nations are now de-dollarizing and setting up mechanisms for bilateral trade in other currencies, then what is everybody going to do with these dollars? Get rid of them. And what are you going to do with the proceeds of the sale? I think most sellers of dollars would rather own gold than just pick another random fiat currency like the euro or the yen or the pound or something like that. I mean, just look at a chart of the price of gold. Gold is in a bull market in every single currency on the planet. So whatever currency you're looking at, if you compare it to gold, gold is still better. And interest rates everywhere around the world, despite the fact that they've gone up, pretty much every country has interest rates lower than the inflation rate. So every country is offering negative interest rates. Well, how does that compete with gold? When countries were offering positive interest rates, that was competition for gold because gold had no interest. And so uh, governments in effect said, hey, don't hold gold. You're gonna lose out on the opportunity to collect all this interest. Hold pound sterling, hold the euro, hold the dollar, right? All these currencies, uh, the central banks were giving people an incentive to hold them. Now they're providing the opposite. They're incentivizing everybody to buy gold. If you hold British pounds, you are going to lose purchasing power. The inflation rate is well above 
the interest rate. So we're not going to pay you anywhere near enough interest to offset what you're going to lose to inflation. So what's your alternative? Buy gold. Everybody is now being incentivized to own gold instead of fiat currency to avoid that loss. You see, gold is now a higher yielding asset than any of these currencies. Not that it has a higher positive yield. It just doesn't have as big a negative yield because gold has got a 0% interest rate and all these other countries have a negative interest rate that's much larger than that. Even if you factor in the cost of storing your gold and figure, okay, so it's 15 basis points a year, so I've got a negative yield of 0.15, that's still a higher yield than any of these currencies. So that's what's going on. People, central banks around the world are divesting and they are building up their gold reserves. And that's why you don't have a lot of downside risk in the price of gold. There's too many buyers beneath the market looking to buy and they will take advantage of any opportunity. That's why the opportunities are not going to get that big. So if you're looking to buy a dip, you may get a small dip, but you're not going to get a big dip. So you have to just step up and buy because the people who are too greedy, who are waiting for too big a sale are going to be left out in the cold and they're not going to end up with any gold and they're just going to watch the price uh, skyrocket. So I'd be buying now. And again, the same thing with the, um, the mining stocks. The mining stocks have pulled back a little bit. You know, with gold keeps getting hammered, it doesn't crack. But, you know, these gold mining stocks are correcting now, even though the price of gold is really not. Yes, it's off its high. Gold got to like 2,040. So we're off the high. But the fact that we keep closing above $2,000 an ounce, to me, represents significant strength that you're getting buying at this number. You're not getting a rush to sell. You're getting a lot of people coming in to buy because they know that $2,000 isn't expensive. $2,000 is cheap. So again, you want to buy your gold. I've been pounding the table. Call up the guys at, at Shift Gold. Buy gold. You want to be more aggressive. Buy silver, of course. They're not mutually exclusive. You can buy both. But if you want to get really aggressive and go for the home run and get the 10 baggers or more, you want to look at the mining stocks. You want to look at the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. You want to talk to our representatives there about buying that fund or about setting up a managed account where you have individual uh, mining stocks. I think this is where the biggest potential is. Instead of you know following Kathy Wood and buying Tesla because you think that thing is going to be a 10-bagger, I think you have a much better chance of making that type of return with a gold mining stock and a lot less downside risk. The big money has already been made in Tesla. Maybe Kathy Wood hasn't noticed that, right? So where the big money is yet to be made is in these mining stocks because these mining stocks are much lower than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whereas Tesla has already gone up uh, dramatically. And so that stock should be sold uh, and a lot of these mining stocks should be bought. There may be a time in the future when Tesla is a buy, but this ain't that time. There's still a lot more downside risk in that stock. Now, alternatively, Bitcoin is not acting like gold. Bitcoin was not able to hold the 30,000 level. I know when it first got above 30,000, all the Bitcoin holders were out in force. You know, they got their laser beams up again. 
looking for 100,000 Bitcoin or higher. I mean, there's this one guy, supposedly, I forget who he was, that made some big bet that Bitcoin was going to hit a million dollars like in a month or some short time frame. And it made a lot of news. Now, maybe he made that bet because he wanted to help push up the price of Bitcoin so he can unload a bunch of it and make a lot more money than what he threw away on that bet, which may have been simply a publicity stunt to try to generate some, some FOMO buying into Bitcoin from people who actually thought it was possible that Bitcoin could actually get to a million dollars of Bitcoin you know, in, in, in that short of time period. But anyway, as I'm recording this now, Bitcoin is barely hanging on to 28,000. It's 28,300. Uh, so we've pulled back quite a bit and potentially we've seen a high, not only in Bitcoin, but a lot of these risk assets. I mean, what happened to Tesla today and that 10% drop, um, to me, looks like maybe we finally run out of room for these risk assets to rally. The reason they rallied so much was the market really got ahead of itself and, and looking forward at rate cuts. Right? Well, because the Fed is going to be cutting rates because the economy is going into recession and everybody just expects that recession means lower inflation. And so everybody was trying to get prepared for the next round of rate cuts and QE, thinking that this tech stocks would be the place to be because they were the place to be the last time the Fed cut rates to zero and went back to QE. Well, I've been saying that this time it's different. It's not going to be what worked last time that's going to work this time because this time it's a period of high inflation that's very different than a period of low inflation. And so everything that worked during the bubble is not going to work this time. Uh, so you have to have a completely different portfolio uh, than the one that worked uh, for QE1, 2, 3, and 4. This time it's going to be the value stocks, the non-US dollar denominated stocks, emerging markets, commodities, gold, silver, those type of portfolios. Kathy Wood doesn't own any of these stocks. Her portfolio is the opposite of what you'd want to own for the economic environment that we're now in. But I want to finish up this podcast by talking about a new government program. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, I get emails and people want to know, how do you have all this content, right? You do your podcasts and, you know, you talk for a half hour, an hour, you know, you know, don't you run out of stuff to say? And, you know, I don't run out of stuff to say because politicians don't run out of dumb ideas. You know, there's just an unlimited supply of this nonsense. So it constantly gives me material to discuss on my podcast. Now, I wish politicians didn't do all these dumb things. And so I wouldn't have to talk about it. But unfortunately, they do. And since they do, well, I've got to expose it just in case some people can't figure this out on their own. But anyway, and I didn't even read about this until this morning. And I, in fact, you know, there were some articles that I missed. The New York Post had an article about it a few days ago. I, I totally missed that. But there were a lot of stories about it today for some reason. The new policy takes effect on May 1st. So that's probably why we're starting to see these stories. Now, the government does a lot of dumb things, right? And this is probably one of the dumbest things they've done. And that's saying a lot, right? Because the bar is pretty low when it comes to, you know, how dumb. You got to get really low to be dumber than most of the dumb things. But I think this succeeds. And this is something that 
the politicians, you know, they should have learned something from their mistakes. Now, this involves housing. And here is this bright idea that the Biden administration has come up with. As we all know, you know, you have Fannie and Freddie, which are still around, and FHA, but the government guarantees mortgages, privately issued mortgage. So if you're a bank and if you originate a mortgage and you and it has certain it meets certain criteria, the government will guarantee it. So it's like a the government co-signs the mortgage. Now this should not happen. Right? This is a complete mistake. The government should have no involvement in housing. Uh, if you want to borrow money to buy a house, it should be on the strength of your credit. There should be no government guarantee. And if you can't convince somebody to loan you money without a government guarantee, then you shouldn't be able to borrow the money. I mean, that's how a free market would work. Unfortunately, we don't have a free market. Certainly in housing, it's a very socialized market. And this new government rule is a perfect example of why the government has no business at all being involved in housing. We should dismantle the FHA and Fannie and Freddie. They all need to be abolished. And this is proof. As if we didn't have enough proof, right? This provides the icing on that cake, right? And and so what they're now going to do, the Biden administration says that they want to encourage more underrepresented people to buy homes, right? Well, I guess it's minorities, uh, or people that are poorer, people that have bad credit histories, right? We want more of those people to buy homes. Now, why you would want more people that have a bad history of credit? Why would you want them to buy homes? No, we don't want them buying homes at all. We don't want people who can't pay their bills taking on a mortgage, the biggest bill of all, when they they can't even pay smaller bills on time. Why, why do we want to give these people a mortgage? That's the last thing you'd want to do. But the Biden administration wants to encourage banks to lend more money to people who don't have a good history of paying it back. Right now, first of all, the the lending business is not really about making loans. Right. That's not the business. Anybody can make loans. The key to the lending business is getting paid back. Right. That that that's what makes a business Right. you got to get your money back plus interest. Right. Because if it was just about making loans, I mean, a monkey could make loans just to prove every loan that uh, that you got. The reason we have loan officers is to know which loans to reject, right? So you, the bank minimizes its losses because the bank is there to make a profit. Well, if you loan out money and you don't get paid back, you're not going to make a profit. So you got to loan out money to people who are going to pay it back. Now, Sometimes banks might make a loan to somebody that maybe is a little riskier, right? Maybe they, 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 you know, on a mortgage, they don't put up a big down payment. They, you know, maybe they have bad credit. To the extent that the bank is going to make that loan, it's going to have to charge a big premium to that borrower, charge him higher rate. Why? Well, A, they're taking more risk. Right. When you take more risk, you get more return. Like if you buy a junk bond, you get a higher yield than if you buy U.S. Treasury. Why? Because you're taking extra risk. You've got to get paid for that. So if you're going to make a loan to somebody who is a worse credit risk, then you got to get a higher yield. 
for taking that risk. Plus, also, what happens is if you make a lot of risky loans, right? You loan out money to people who may not pay you back. Some of those people won't pay you back. Well, you have to make enough money off the people who do pay you back to cover the losses on the people who don't. That's what makes it work. So you have to charge the guy that has a low FICO score, a low down payment. You've got to charge that guy more. That's the only way the market is going to function. You know, it's kind of like health insurance, which is another thing that the government screwed up. But healthy people can buy insurance cheaper than sick people. That makes sense because healthy people are probably not going to put in a claim. And because they're probably not going to put in a claim, the insurance companies can sell them a policy with a low premium. Now, if you're sick and you're likely to start putting in claims, well, you're going to have to pay more. The way the insurance companies are able to even insure these sick people who are probably going to put in claims is because you have all these healthy people buying insurance that aren't putting in claims. They're buying something they're probably not going to need. And so the insurance companies can take those premiums and, 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 and cover some sick people. But here's what happens. The government says, oh, that's not fair. We have to, we, we, we got to get rid of these pre-existing conditions. Everybody should pay the same, whether they're sick or healthy. Insurance companies shouldn't be able to discriminate. Well, the minute you do that, now they have to jack up what they pay the healthy people. Well, now the problem is the healthy people don't want to buy the policies because they're too expensive. They'll take their chances. They don't really need it. And the whole thing collapses. It doesn't function. That's why you have to then pass a law and force the healthy people to buy insurance because it's too expensive. Right. But if the government just stays out of the way, the market works great and the insurance companies are able to provide coverage. Yes. If you're sick, you've got to pay more, but at least you can get a policy when the government comes in that, that the whole thing gets destroyed. But they're doing the same thing here with housing. So this is what these idiots in the Biden administration have decided to implement. Right. It's already done. It's not like it had to go through Congress. Biden just said, this is it. This is how it's going to work. Now, all the banks are just going to have to do this. So there's something called, I wrote it down. Hold on. Loan level price adjustments. And this is something that gets made, I guess, after the bank. You know, these are private banks. After they uh, have a loan, for the loan to then be, I guess, a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or one of these loans, they then make these adjustments before Fannie or Freddie will guarantee them. I think that's how it's wor- how it works. And so according to these new rules, and I'm not making this up, right? So people that have a low down payment are going to be given a discount on their mortgage. And people who make a high down payment are going to have to pay extra. The opposite of what it would be. See, normally, if you make a big down payment, you know, you, you're, you know, you're less risky. Why? Well, you've got skin in the game, right? If you put 20% down, the bank is a lot less likely to lose money than if you only put 5% down because you've got the first 20%. They've got a big cushion. Real estate prices have to fall by more than 20% before they are at risk. But also, if you put a big down payment down, even if the price of the house goes down, you've incentivized to keep making your payments 
because you've, you've got so much skin in the game. You don't want to walk away from a big down payment. So that gives the bank coverage. It's less likely that a guy that makes a big down payment is going to default. And even if he does, the bank is less likely to lose money. Or if they do lose money, they're going to lose less. On the other hand, if you make a very small or no down payment, you know, it's very easy for you to just cut and run. You know, you have a little trouble. Real estate market is soft. What the hell? I'm out of here. I got no skin in the game. Doesn't matter to me. I've got no equity in this home. I'm, I'm leaving. And of course, you know, the ability to save up a big down payment says a lot about your character, your ability to save money, which is something that homeowners need. You have to have money as opposed to a renter. When you're a renter, you don't really need a lot of savings because if something breaks, you call the landlord and he's got to fix it. But when you own the house, you got to fix it. So you need the money to fix stuff. So you have to be able to save. So there are powerful reasons why we want big down payments and why banks will charge somebody a lower interest rate if they put a big down payment. And that's one of the reasons that people put a big down payment because they know they're going to get a lower rate. Well, now the Biden administration has turned that on its head. The Biden administration says, no, the, 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 the poor disenfranchised people, they don't have a lot of money for a down payment. We want to encourage them to go buy homes, even though they can't really afford them. So we're going to force the banks to give people who have low down payments a better deal than people who have high down payments, right? So the people who are making these high down payment mortgages, they're going to subsidize the people with low down payment. Now, what an asinine idea to try to encourage banks to take on uh, these risks. But here is the unintended consequence that the government doesn't, doesn't get. People have a choice on their down payment. So if the government changes the incentives, the incentives used to be to make a high down payment because you would get a lower rate if you made a high down payment. Now the government says, uh-uh, we're going to flip that upside down. We're going to give you a lower rate if you make a low down payment. Well, people will just make low down payments now. You've now discouraged everybody from making high down payments. Well, now if the people making high down payments, we're going to subsidize the people who are making low down payments. Who's there to pay the subsidy? Nobody, because everybody stops making high down payments. Everybody wants to make a low down payment because everybody wants to get the cheaper mortgage. So there is no money to pay for this. Where is it going to come from? I don't know, but the banks aren't going to have it because the home buyer is going to change. See, this is what the government never understands, the moral hazard. How does their own policy affect people's behavior? The government looks at all these people making big down payments and says, hey, let's tax them and give the money to people with low down payments. Now, all of a sudden, the people that you wanted to tax aren't there anymore because they've altered their behavior. They are now making lower down payments because it's easy. If you were making a high down payment, it's easy to just make a low down payment. Instead, you just put less money down, right? So that behavior is easy to, to change. The same thing with FICO scores. The government is also saying that if you have a high FICO score, you're going to get punished. You're going to pay extra on your mortgage, right? Mortgage rates have already gone up, right? They're maybe they're six and a quarter percent, something like that, a fixed rate mortgage. But if you have a high FICO score and you put a down payment, you're now going to get socked with 
a double whammy premium, you're going to get punished for putting a high down payment and you're going to get punished for your good credit score. On the other hand, the guy with a low down payment is going to get a reward. And if he has a bad FICO score, he's going to get another reward. So now the banks are going to give you a better deal if you have a, a, a bad history of repaying your debts. So low FICO scores are now preferable to high FICO scores. What kind of bizarro world is the government trying to create where they want to incentivize bad behavior and reward good behavior? Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's gonna happen, although nobody in government has a clue. Not only are people gonna be incentivized to put down a low down payment, which is obviously easy to do, but now you've got an incentive to wreck your own FICO score before applying for a mortgage. Now, I don't know how many people will actually do that or how it might infect them. It depends on how much you can save, but it's easy to lower your FICO score. Just don't pay a few bills, right? Just you know, stop paying a couple of things and, and, and get some dings on your credit and just make sure that your credit rating is low enough so that when you buy a house, you can get this sweetheart deal, right? But again, if people are gonna deliberately sabotage their own credit ratings so that they can get paid as opposed to having to pay, again, the pool of people that the government was counting on to finance this disappears because they're not there anymore. Everybody wants to qualify to get the subsidy. Nobody wants to be the sucker who has to foot the bill. And the supposed goal of the Biden administration is, oh, we want to have you know, more diversity in home ownership. We want to make sure more African-Americans own homes or I don't know what, you know, you know, what other demographic they want. Or, you know, but none of this should be a factor in home ownership. People should buy homes who can afford them. That's it. That is the only criteria. And banks are colorblind. Banks aren't out there discriminating based on race, based on sexual orientation, based on gender. Banks just look at the ability of the borrower to repay the loan. That's the only thing that should matter. How much money does this person earn? How much are they paying for this house? How much are they borrowing? You know, what are their other debts? What are their incomes? Is this mortgage serviceable? Can they handle it? And are they putting a, a, a down payment down? And of course, the government has already uh, stopped that from functioning with these guarantees because a lot of people are able to buy homes that they never could have bought, but for that government guarantee. Those transactions shouldn't happen. Now, of course, a lot of those people might have been able to buy less expensive homes without the government guarantee. And in fact, a lot of the homes would have lower prices, but for these government subsidized mortgages, because the only way that the houses could sell would be at lower prices. So if the government got out of the way, a lot of people who need government guarantees wouldn't because they wouldn't have to borrow so much money because they'd be able to buy the houses for a lot less money because government subsidized mortgages wouldn't be propping up the market. And of course, other people would just rent, but people are better off renting than buying. Buying is not for everyone. When the government encourages people through subsidies to buy when they would be better off renting, 
they do a grave disservice to everybody. Now, a lot of people think, what? No, no, no. Home ownership is your ticket to wealth. That's how everybody gets rich in America. No, it's not. Yes, during a housing bubble, you can get rich if you sell out you know, at, at peak prices. But over extended periods of time, you're not getting rich owning a home. The, the prices are going up because of inflation. In the meantime, it costs a fortune. You don't see how much money people spend every year to maintain their homes, right? So when people look, oh, I bought my house for X and I sold it for Y, and, oh, that's a big gain. But how much did you spend year after year after year? Not just on property taxes, insurance, maintenance. Houses are money pits, right? They cost a lot of money. That's, you know, there's something called a teardown, right? People say, what's a teardown? That's a house that used to be worth a lot of money because it was brand new when somebody bought it, and now it's worth nothing. You're going to tear it down. Why? Because it wasn't maintained, right? In order to have a house that's not a teardown, you have to put a lot of money into it. So it's always been a fiction that the American dream is to buy a home, right? That was concocted by a realtor trying to sell you a home. But all these politicians have bought into that myth that the way to equalize wealth is to have more homeowners. No, if you're, if you're poor, if you don't have a lot of money, one of the quickest ways to lose even more is to buy a house. So the best thing that a lot of these people could do that the Biden administration is trying to encourage to buy homes is to rent homes. They get a much better deal doing that. In the meantime, they can take the money they save by not being a homeowner and they can invest that. They could do something with that to build up net worth, not overpay for a house they can't afford that will end up destroying their net worth. But again, like everything government does, it backfires and they always achieve the opposite of what they set out uh, to achieve. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. I want to cut it off. I'm going to be doing a live uh, Q&A again for the premium members. Shiftradio.com slash premium is where you go if you want to sign up to take part in the live Q&As. Bye for now.